gonna, I'm gonna count down three, two, one, and everyone's gonna clap for step. Three, two, one. Pretty good. All right. <clears throat> the year is 2000. You are living in Victoria, British Columbia, and you are working at the anti-capitalist anarchist pizza shop, and it will be one of the worst jobs you've ever had in your entire life. You are constantly broke and competing with a larval version of Hot Hot Heat to open for the Murder City Devils at a sports bar, which is one of the only places you can play in town. The year is 2003. You are living in Montreal. You are working at a telemarketing office. This is bad, but it is less bad than working for the anarchists at the pizza shop. Your rent is $10 a month or something, and you are looking forward to playing a show at an abandoned arcade. At this show, you will sweat more than you thought humanly possible. There are roughly 150 people at this show. Most of them know you. It feels like playing an arena. The year is 2006. You are essentially living in a tour van and working full-time as a musician. It is better than both the telemarketing job and the anarchist pizza job. You will play festivals and sold-out shows in America and Europe and have a mild case of bronchitis for about 200 days. You are riding on the crest of a great wave, and the name of that wave is Canadian Indie Rock. The year is 2022, and you are listening to The Bottleman. Riley is gone. He's, uh, he's still alive. He's just not on the, on the show today. Um, he's on a fact-finding mission to visit every European location of Tim Hortons and uh, sample the local specials. He's in coastal Spain. He's enjoying a nice Tim Hortons jamón bocadillo, and uh, he's doing just fine. So I'm, I'm solo piloting the ship. I, I have no idea what's going to happen, but uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see if I stick the landing. Um, joining me today is uh, Michael Barclay, author of such books as Have Not Been the Same, uh, The Never-Ending Present, and the definitive oral history of Canada's rise to soft power in the field of indie rock. The book is Hearts on Fire, Canadian Music, 2000 to 2006. And also, bonus joining us are Arlen Thompson of Wolf Parade and Anunnaki, and Tim Kingsbury of Arcade Fire, Sam Patch, and Stellium, two guys that I am in bands with at the same time. <laughs> Three normal guys. <laughs> Normal guys. Normal guys. Very normal. How's everybody? Uh, how's everybody doing in their respective corner of Canada? As good as can be. Where are you right now, Michael? Uh, I'm in Toronto. Okay. How is yeah. how is downtown Canada? Uh, it's quite rainy today, and uh, we just voted in more fascists, so you know it's not going that great. Yeah, there was something like thirty eight percent of the uh, voting population voted. <laughs> It's the first time in my life I actually considered not voting. I was so disenchanted. You can always vote communist, you know, when you feel that way. You can always vote for the uh, No, but I, vote for I did have the option of voting for the uh, Stop Sex Ed Party. That was an option in my writing. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually, a, that's actually a, like grim. a single issue party? Uh, you know, that's my guess, but who knows what they have yeah. on their plate. I, I'm wow. imagining Maybe. that's like a party of one, maybe two people. <laughs> yeah. Like Wow incredible um it would yeah. yeah that election was amazing just i i mean i knew it was gonna go poorly but just watching the ndp and liberal leadership uh just disappear after after the votes were counted you know just resigning <laughs> well, they should have one of them should have resigned four years ago but anyway that's yeah. a whole other story. no i agree i agree <laughs> um 
Well, okay. We're for once we're not here to talk about the Ford family or Ontario politics. Um, we're we're here to talk about uh, something we all experienced, we all have lived experience with, which is the uh, the great rise and rise and rise of Canadian indie rock, starting in uh, two thousand and uh, going to two. We're just going to cover from two thousand to two thousand six, I think, in this in this episode. But uh, but yeah, the old days, the old days, the salad days, if you will. Um, I got to say, like this book is is no small feat. Like the the bands detailed in the book are fairly different from each other, and there are small clusters or cliques of people that either work together, shared members, or were inspired by each other. And as I was reading it, I was thinking like. This book really covers the last, I think, the last rock and roll movement that mainstream print journalism uh, boosted, you know? Uh, yeah. I, I don't think there's been... I mean, print journalism for music is is dying or dead almost entirely, but uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, like, monthly magazines. But, but I don't think there's been another movement that was as covered, you know, since then. And I, I wanted to... No. I, I wanted to ask you, like, what would you even call this movement? Is it... It's not grunge. It's I don't know. Does it have a name? Uh, I think the the bulk of the book gets lumped under indie rock, even though I'm not sure what that's supposed to sound like, other than people with guitars. Yeah. Um. I mean, there's a lot of people in this book who are not indie rock at all. I don't think. Yeah. And uh, and and even people like Godspeed, I'm sure, would just barf at the term. Um. You know, like Caribou is not indie rock. Kid Koala is not indie rock. You know, the Sadies are not indie rock. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but it is a time and place. And I think there's a DIY spirit to it all, um, that comes out of kind of the punk rock ethos, if that can even be defined. Um, and I think it's a lot of people who just realized that, uh, like traditional methods, uh, were not working anymore. And it was, it was a total sea change. Like the, the new technology, whether it was putting your music online for people to hear or whether it was home recording technology, like, um, there's bunch of things happening on all kinds of technological fronts that led to this boom i think made it all happen in ways that weren't possible even five years earlier yeah yeah and we'll we'll get to that um later in the episode i want to talk about that in in detail like the role of the internet but as i was reading this book too like one of my one of my sort of top level takeaways was that this was a specifically special time in that you had the meat space infrastructure still existing but you had uh you had the burgeoning online world driving actual ticket sales record sales it was uh i mean i felt i felt personally it made me reading this made me feel even more lucky that i happened to kind of come up in that era i don't know i don't know tim arlen what you guys feel about that that specific window well i feel like uh because there wasn't such a, a kind of industry microscope on with what we were kind of doing, I think it really, there was like a freedom to kind of do whatever we felt like. Uh, and we just, you know, just knowing that no one was going to kind of care in a, in a sense anyways, uh, in that kind of media, uh, kind of, I don't know, we call it like mainstream Canadian world. Yeah. Also too, I think like, you know, much music and stuff was kind of on its way out too at that time. It feels like they kind of had their heyday of the nineties. Um, and so, yeah, I felt there was this kind of freedom that you're just kind of making music for your friends and other kind of weirdos. And, uh, you know, you didn't really have to think about, you know, is this going to translate? Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to do something for like a national audience or something. It just, it just didn't. 
didn't even conceive of it even existing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was it was really about trying to get like a gig at like a bar or at a at a at a, at a loft or at a yeah. you know yeah yeah literally just trying to find somewhere you know to play that you know I, I remember even that I don't know if you guys remember that Pasla Manny oh yeah bar. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and just how it was you, it was so loose you could you got to hmm? describe Pasla Manny's for the listener because this is truly a special place that makes an appearance in uh, in Michael's book so. I had to learn how it's, to spell it. That was no small feat. Yeah, anyway, go on. I remember. <laughs> I still have a business card, I think, from yeah. uh, made, the, the Nick the Sun. business cards. That's hilarious. Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> but it was probably one of the grimiest bars I've ever been to in my life. Uh, when I first started going there, uh, I visited Montreal in uh, like March. Of, I think it would have been uh, 2000. It was 2001, uh, so it was before I lived in Montreal, and we went to this bar, and the the kind of selling point was like, it's run by this old woman named Helen, and it has a good jukebox, and you can stay in there and drink, and sometimes you can drink after hours. Mm-hmm. And so we went to this bar, and it's, yeah, the, the woman, Helen, would... Uh, Tent would kind of hold court in like a recliner and they had like, she had like a giant TV and she'd be in a recliner and would be frequently asleep and you'd have to like poke her and wake her up <laughs> to get a beer. Uh, and sometimes if she liked you, she would make you snacks in the, from the back room. So she'd come out with like a, like a bowl of like cut up apples or like a bagel for everyone to share nutritious something nutritious yeah but she would like frequently it would be like you know two in the morning or two thirty in the morning and she would just like lock the door and just let you hang out in there till yeah whatever were you, you know. allowed to leave you were allowed to leave yes <laughs> okay. yeah but you could stay yeah, in yeah. there until the sun came up and you know yeah. if you were yeah. yeah if you were hungry you might get a couple apple slices or like uh some stale greek pastry or something like that you know right yeah, this was this was Bernard and Bernard and Park, roughly. Park, yeah, yeah. Bernard, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, between Bernard Park and Bernard, right yeah. around where I live right now. Actually, um, I walk by right. I walk by the old Salamani's like uh, frequently, and I just I'm always thinking about seeing uh, some of the weirdest shows. The, the Unicorns played there at one point in in Sleeping Bag, like a puppet I show. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Sleeping Bag puppet show. But yeah, I want <laughs> I want it. So you know, the the book begins with this survey of the environment in Canada, like like Tim, like you were talking about and, and Arlen, like the idea that, you know, if you were in a band, you were just looking for a fucking place to play. That that was it. Um, so, yeah, so or, or a band you could open up for or, or something. Well, yeah. yeah, that was, I think, a lot of people's yeah. experiences. Uh, but yeah, so it begins with this survey of the environment in Canada in 2000. And, and I have to admit, like, even though I lived through it, uh, reading it just spelled out over and over by other musicians it was rough. Like the the vibes in Canada for um, independent rock or whatever, you know, electronic or hip hop. The, the the infrastructure seemed kind of hollowed out. Um, mm-hmm. And in the opening mm-hmm. of the book, you, Michael, you describe uh, the indie boom of the '90s with joyless audiences sitting on the floor. And I haven't thought about that in a long <laughs> time. Like that was that was kind of the era if you rejected grunge you were listening to like the rachels or the dirty three or gastrodel soul and you were going to shows and you were sitting on the floor and then the other and then the other end of the um sort of spectrum for that was you you have a quote from john k sampson from the weaker thens talking about watching a band called red fisher 
at the Winnipeg West End Cultural Center and describing them as sometimes joined by a long-maned guitar, uh, uh, sorry, long-maned guest frontman in a Pantera t-shirt singing about Jabba the Hutt, which was like, for me, a very specifically painful and accurate description of the late 90s. Yes, like, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, I'm sure you all played those joyless shows. Well, I don't know, maybe not in Victoria. Victoria sounds like more of a manic punk scene. Yeah. But I mean, like, Tim, I'm thinking of like, you know, you're, you toured with Aaron Booth and I'm trying to think of who else, like, like they were like, uh, yeah, yeah. It just seemed like very, very dour. Like, and clubs had closed too. Like in the nineties, I remember a lot of clubs went under mm-hmm. all of a sudden. Yeah. So you I really remember, had to find I remember, space. I remember with Aaron, we played it uh, at the Apollo in Thunder Bay, like two on the way out west and on the way back, and we literally were just playing to, for a meal. And there was like, <laughs> you know, like maybe the op- the other band, the band we were opening for, would have watched us, but no, no one else was in the uh, in the venue, basically. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's actually like that's actually something I wanted to get into now is, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned the Aaron Booth tour because the part of the shittiness of the early 2000s or the late 90s, early 2000s was definitely Michael, like you said, this this sort of dying off of um, these standard rock clubs that you could tour in prior to that, and then also just the geographical nightmare that Canada presents to uh, a band that is broke and trying trying to start up like you know the the infrastructure was lacking it's pre-internet tim you described this tour this aaron booth tour as like you drove from victoria to halifax and then back again is that right no we well we went yeah we went we went toronto victoria to st john's newfoundland to montreal (laughs) (laughs) and and we we did it we did it in under three weeks oh my lord wow so like Cross Canada twice, basically in under three weeks. That's fucking. So a total of how many people? Uh, it was four of us in a minivan with all our gear. What? Yeah. It was the first. It was. It was the only really real time I've ever seen. Jer- Jer- it was the first time Jeremy and I toured together, and it was the only time I saw him cry. <laughs> could you could you describe the circumstances surrounding Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Garrett, drummer of uh, of Arcade Fire, uh, weeping in front of you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he won't mind. <laughs> we, we, uh, no, yeah, we, no, we, we played, so we played a show in Ottawa. Uh, well, we played a show at, um, North of Ottawa in Wakefield and then drove with the, then we, we stayed there the night. We drove the next day, we drove straight to Halifax, not to play a show, but to pick someone up. And then we drove up to North, North Sydney and we, or to Sydney. We played a show and then immediately after the show, we went and caught a ferry, an overnight ferry to Porto Basque. <laughs> <laughs> which is a nine-hour drive from St. John's once you get there. So then, so between Porto Basque and St. John, like, like we were trying, and we and we were booked to play like a three o'clock matinee in St. John's, and we arrived in Porto Basque at like eight or something, and it was just like, so we were gunning it, and 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 like just midway through the drive, Jeremy was like, "Stop the car! I gotta get out!" and and uh, and pulled over, and we all felt it. We were all there. That was it. Was real. Yeah. Yeah. Arlene, were there moose? Oh, go ahead, Michael. No, that was the thing is I was like, everyone's like, Newfoundland's where you see moose. And we did, that was the other thing about the trip. We didn't see a single damn moose. Fucking rip off. Even sadder. Even sadder. Yeah. That was why I was crying. (laughs) (laughs) Arlene, you, uh, you were smart though. You basically, during this time, you kind of eschewed the whole idea of touring across Canada and instead booked it to live in a van in los angeles literally in california with a with a oh yeah honeysuckle honeysuckle yeah. serotonin honeysuckle my my yeah i graduated high school 
And I was in this band and we had this idea that we were going to get in a van, go to LA and like be a rock band. And I was like 18 at the time with like whatever, a couple hundred dollars in like traveler's checks. And uh, (laughs) yeah, we played these like ridiculous, uh, what they call showcase shows at like Whiskey A Go Go and the Roxy where you like pay to play. They, they sell you tickets that you're supposed to sell, but of Mm. course, like nobody, nobody wants to buy these tickets because this is the showcases are fucking terrible. This is the herbal life, uh, the herbal life method of doing shows, of promoting shows. (laughs) It's just MLM shit. But yeah. Yeah. Cause we had, we were like, Oh, we'll sell these tickets. So we're trying to just sell them on the street. Cause we're just total fucking rubes from Victoria. And, uh, yeah, it was just clear. It's like, no, this is this is going to work. But you know, we tried to play, and you know, the idea of like, oh, maybe someone from the industry will see us, or something. Just something will happen, and of course, uh, nothing really happened. Um, but yeah, I got to to deal with some, like living in extreme poverty, and uh, <laughs> you know, living it, living basically in a van in uh, like Santa Monica, and. Uh, the weather was nice, it's, I bet. It was, oh, right. actually. The weather so, was know. great. Um, you got van life. You know, van cheap, life. cheap Mexican food. That? <laughs> like, the van life, yeah. It was total, yeah. yeah. Except, you know, van life with, like, you know, four other dudes. Uh, people, like, came and visited us. So we had, like, six people, like, in this van. <laughs> that it's like John rocks. Peterson and Keith, Keith that, Jones. That's amazing. You're uh, living in a fucking van, and you're like, you know what would be great? Yeah. Roommates. We should have some people yeah, over. Yeah. We're having some friends yeah, over some visitors. out of town. Visitors. Yeah. <laughs> welcome. Welcome, visitors, to the van. Yeah. Did you guys have to sleep Anyways. in shifts or, like... No, we just figured out you could, you know, the spots where you could sleep, you know, how you could, how you could make it work. Uh, but anyways, yeah, absolutely yeah. ridiculous. But it was, you know, it was something you can do when you're 18, you know. Yeah, you can't really uh, do that when you're in your early 30s or even mid 20s, I would say. That's, yeah, yeah, it's grueling. So, like, that's, you know, that's the background. That is the, the sort of environment, the stew that, um, that uh this movement came out of and i've got my own like personal narrow experience of the shift the the sort of shift towards this being a more national musical movement um and international recognition of some of the bands that started putting out records um michael like what do you see as the kind of is there a catalytic event or a small series of events that starts this whole thing off in in 2000 yeah i think there's four no, there's, I think there's five things. I think one is um, Godspeed, okay. who have a head start by a couple of years, yeah. but they're, they're kind of, it's very slow word of mouth build. And, and by 99, 2000, suddenly that's a thing and Europe is going nuts for them and they're on covers of magazines. We're, we're of course and talking re- about uh, Godspeed, you black emperor, uh, the exclamation point uh, moves around, you know, from record to record. They are a collective from montreal uh they're usually uh released by constellation records combination of constellation records here in canada and then cranky i believe in the united states uh and yeah huge impact on music in general and kind of a continuation of the fugazi ethos so yeah yeah with very different music like like 20 minute instrumental art rock um not dissimilar to dirty three and mogwai and some other stuff at the time but but really kind of on their own trip. And I think that's what really attracted people is how 
unique they were, and people didn't expect that to come from Canada. And because they were cloaked in all this mystique, and Montreal was part of that mystique, I think that also attracted people mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and made Montreal more interesting for musicians to move to. So that was one thing. So 2000 is kind of when when Godspeed is is a bigger deal. Um, the new pornographers in Vancouver also kind of have a fluke hit, a band that shouldn't even be a band, a super group full of nobodies that like, you know, end up as one of the New York Times best records of the year mm-hmm. for a record that what for a record that wasn't even out in the States yet. Um, and then you have like uh, Peaches blowing up in Berlin and, and Europe. Um, you have Kid Koala on Ninja Tune um, and all these things like this is not what people expect from Canadian music. This is not what, the, you know, they still think Canadian music is either Alanis or Rush or Neil Young, yeah. like one of those three kind of thing. Yeah. Any um, any of the kind of uh, sort of indie, even even sort of the bigger selling indie stuff from the late nineties would was not reaching beyond the borders of of no, this not country. at all, not at all. Like I can't even. I'm trying to think of who even would in the late nineties, other than Godspeed. It's tough. I mean, we always joke around on this show, and uh, and because my co-host who's absent is Ontarian uh and then on my other podcast Fortune Kit about the only people who knew about like I Mother Earth and uh Our Lady Peace are any of our friends who lived in Buffalo. Right. Because <laughs> they could they would hear it on the radio. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Um so I feel like this is when when and part of the thesis of the book is that this is when the rest of the world not only gave a shit, but gave a shit about the weirdos, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and came to expect from Canada, uh, interesting music, you know, as opposed to just assuming it'll be bad. Like Canadian music was an international punchline. I feel like for a long time. Yeah. And there'd be exceptions like, like Mary Margaret O'Hara or Cowboy Junkies or Skinny Puppy or like John Oswald or, you know, like kind of random little things, but, um, but certainly not, uh, most people didn't know most of those people were Canadian. So yeah, yeah, like you'd have you would have these big acts that would kind of detach themselves from a Canadian identity, um, or you would have like Skinny Puppy, a, a band that would essentially just be very influential and huge on a cult level, but obviously never get played on the radio because for most people that music is unlistenable. <laughs> or no means no, no means no would be another example too. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting. Right now, I'm I'm reading this book about kids in the hall because I was excited by the reunion and the documentary, and and it made me think too. Like that's how important that was too for shaping perceptions of what Canadians could be. Like really dark and weird and hilarious, and uh, and and how different they were from all the other comedy at the time. And I feel like the generation we're talking about now are people who grew up with like kids in the hall. No big deal. Like you can be totally weird and totally dark and. Yeah. And identifiably Canadian, and that's that's awesome. That's actually a, a huge trans- point. Oh, go ahead, Erlen. Oh, and a bit transgressive too. This totally, idea that totally. of, of you know Canadian art being trend, like you know, I guess there was some pretty big transgressive stuff, like you know, it's like general idea, yeah, uh, the, yeah. Uh, the artists and and uh, you know even like Rough Trade um, mm-hmm. back in the day. But I mean, that that was a real again very specific scene and and kind of a small thing and never really started something kind of nationally, you know? And we, we were talking about that, you know, the kind of dour scene earlier, but like, I mean, I remember like when I'm going to shows in high school or, or when I first moved to Montreal, like you just also kind of, there were just so many variety of bands. Like you never knew what you were going to get kind of like, there was just a huge variety. Like you, 
yeah, everyone kind of felt free to do whatever they wanted in a way. Like it wasn't, no one was trying to sound like something, I don't think. Yeah. But I think it was partly like a financial constraint too. It was like, okay, well, we've got some crappy guitars and uh, a, dr- a drum machine that barely works. Let's just, let's see what we can do with that. Yeah. And it was for good and bad, you know, because for every band that you would totally. see that was like <laughs> something like Flag Camp or... I don't know, just something really interesting. There would be a, a Celtic funk band with a, yeah. with a white guy with dreads who was rapping and playing jam. Funkopotamus. <laughs> yeah, Funkopotamus yeah. Rex. Uh, <laughs> Victoria, Shrimp, I mean, fucking Victoria was lousy with that shit. It was like that, yeah. that was the competition, like at real venues. You were either playing all ages venues where you were first of eight and the PA was bad mm-hmm. and there were no monitors or you were trying to get on a bill with, uh, you know, yeah, a band called uh, Funkasaurus Rex. <laughs> so, but, okay. So, I mean, and then, then the, the giant iceberg uh, during this period too is the internet. So, I, w- I wanted to talk a little bit about the main driver. Uh, I, I think one of the main drivers of this era. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit before we get to the the obvious website that we need to talk about. I wanted to talk about MontrealShows.com, uh, which was and and similar sites too. Yeah, like still post in Toronto and and there's the, I, I'm yeah, sure I can't post. remember what was out Holy. west, but um, I forgot about still post. Uh, at a certain point, it all got consolidated, kind of like there was yeah. twenty hertz and it was, it was yeah. Ryan Mills. Twenty hertz, the whole yeah. Thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. MontrealShows.com was like forty hertz for a while, right? That was that was the little tag on. I t- so I tried to dig up. Yeah. In the Wayback Machine, um, I was like, I'm going to find all the posts. And what you get if you go to the Wayback Machine is just the post titles and none of the actual meat. But Oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> but it was really funny to just go through the post titles and have like, you know, I, I remembered some of these like flame wars on the on the board because at the time that this, this music message board was coming up, like I was, Tim and I were both working at a sort of a pharmaceutical survey company and uh, market, research. market research. And I would, if I had computer access, I was definitely going on MontrealShows.com to post about my mm-hmm. band and or see who was shit talking me. Right, right. <laughs> so that was kind of my first experience with like online culture and posting. And uh, it took, kind of took me a while to get the hang of it. But yeah, but it was like really central to the music scene in Montreal, I feel like. I kind of yeah, I just it kind of I feel like it started like right probably within a month or two of me being in Montreal, like 2001 or something. Because I and like immediately like just learning about gigs through it and learning like where shows were and and then meeting people through it. And yeah, I think that was key finding out where the gigs were because a lot of it was not stuff that was in clubs, so you wouldn't see it in the mirror. Yeah, right. Hour. Yeah, we just so, somebody's loft or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was a yeah crucial information. Like mm-hmm. the third door on the left and this abandoned. Yeah. Like, yeah. You needed that website to know where to go. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Arlen, did you ever post on that board? Uh, Yeah. I remember posting a little bit, but uh, yeah, I remember it. What was there were certain characters on it that seemed to kind of dominate. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. Discussions. the board lords. Yeah. <laughs> the board. Yeah. There were some board lords. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I do remember it, it. Yeah. Being really invaluable for like what what was kind of happening um, it was also too, there was not just shows. It was like, you know, uh, someone having, yeah, like an art show or whatever kind of weird stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It just kind of having all these different kind of characters kind of, um, kind of coming together 
Um, and yeah, it was, there was a lot of, there's a lot of bullshit on there too, but yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was kind of interesting, uh, to see how that kind of like pre social media, I mean, it was, yeah, it was kind of like a, a small scale social media network for, you know, Montreal and, and Ontario kind of, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, was it still post that was, yeah. Cause there's one that was a whole bunch of different cities in, in Ontario and Montreal, I think. Was that still post or? Yeah. Yeah. Like Montreal yeah. shows was part of that. Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Cause yeah. I remember even seeing stuff on, you know, Toronto, you could, you could, you know, if you were going to play Toronto or something, you'd kind of see like who's doing what and whatnot yeah, too, which totally. was kind of cool. Try yeah. and connect with people yeah. too. I, th- I think at the beginning, yeah. the scene was very geographically sort of distanced. And then those, those boards really did allow people to communicate with each other across very great distances sort yeah. of build build relationships or uh just say like super nasty stuff to each other and create create these little like bullshit rivalries but uh yeah um you know and then the other thing driving this era of course is like the rise of pitchwork.com um which has gone through not unlike vice magazine um maybe not to the same tumultuous degree not to the same high highs and low lows but but Pitchfork has gone through an incredible sort of transformation from its beginnings. Um, I would read it religiously every every day, you know. And uh, I okay, I, I just I wanted to I wanted to kind of highlight how different Pitchfork is now from it is from what it was back then by re- by reading a uh, a much deleted. They've they've tried to get rid of it, folks. They've tried to erase it from the internet. But uh, but I found it and saved it. Um, it is Pitchfork fi- founder Ryan Schreiber uh, writing about a John Coltrane record uh, live at the Village Vanguard. And I, I, I won't read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read a little bit. And this is just to illustrate how different the Condé Nast Pitchfork is from the old Pitchfork. <clears throat> All right. We was... I'm I'm just going to read this flat because if <laughs> we was sitting there watching the stage waiting for the man they called the Coltrane to come out and do his thing. It was me and my four droogs, them being Peter, Giorgio and Dim. Round an hour had passed and the place was packed straight through the back. I dropped some dollars for train. That's uh, apostrophe T-R-A-N-E trains giant steps six months back. Now is the time. Now is the place. Village Vanguard, New York City. I'm going to skip some of this. Thank you. Man, the opening beauty of spiritual. It's like a dream I had. I floated on the River, river Nile, smoking that fresh weed, relaxing. But I ain't ever not going to seen the River Nile anyway. This track is as close as I come, and it's close enough. Shit, cat. It don't make no difference. Anyway, I'll, I'll spare you guys the rest of that. But um, yeah, I thought. He, ne- he never wrote that way about Wolf Parade, you're saying? Yeah, I'm, you know, I don't know why he didn't bring the uh, the big guns out for the Wolf Parade review, but uh, yeah, that so that review disappeared after they were um, absorbed into Condé Nast, along with a couple other other reviews. But uh, but but I- can I give you a hot tip? Yeah, his his review of a uh, the first Gold Frap record is still up there, and it's equally hideous for entirely different reasons. Is it in a character? Is like is it in a voice? It's super creepy. Okay. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so this is a so what we're dealing with in the early two thousands is a less disciplined, um, more freeform version of Pitchfork, uh, which nevertheless has the power to make or break careers. And and Michael, you get into this in the book about how getting a high score in Pitchfork 
does not necessarily translate into, you know, continued prolonged success. These days. These days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what does? That's the magic question. Um, but like back then, you would actually sell records and people would come to your shows and they would buy your records. Or there were things like Aquarius Records in San Francisco who had an amazing newsletter and did a lot of mail order. Or there was something called InSound. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, it was kind of yeah, like the yeah. Amazon for indie music. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah totally. um, and so no matter where you lived, if you lived in the middle of Iowa and you read Pitchfork, you'd go on InSound and order these records. Yeah. Um, and some a band like the Unicorns did incredibly well there. A band like the Unicorns, by the way, in Pitchfork, this is nothing Pitchfork would do. They ran, I swear to God, it's like a 10,000 word transcript of an interview with the Unicorns where nothing happens. <laughs> it's just them like yanking their chain for like 10,000 words. And you know, I read it because I'm writing this book, but I'm like, who would have read this at the time? <laughs> who would have sat through this? Yeah, which is so, so, which is so different than like you know a recent. I read, I read a re, the last long form thing I read in Pitchfork was on um, War on Drugs. I spent about ten thousand words talking about how they made a record during a pandemic, and it was just like it, it was just very boilerplate and uh, hard. You know, not entertaining. You know. It's the long. There's great. There, I will. I will say. There's great writing in Pitchfork. I read it often. People like Jen Pelly. There's lots of. Yeah. You know, the, the Jessica mm-hmm. Hopper years were particularly great. Um, I I would never slag Pitchfork as a thing because it's any magazine. It's very easy to pick. You know, the worst examples of what they do. That's true. But I think what what's worth talking about is is the influence, and that this was definitely again a sea change, a generational change. It was like. Never mind Rolling Stone. Nobody's cared about that for years. Spin Magazine, nobody cares anymore. This is what people were reading to find out something new. And because it was immediate, and because the legendary Arcade Fire review came out three days before the record did, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I'm sure the record was probably being pirated at that point, but still that point that like this incredibly influential review could appear before the release date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that was a huge deal. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, that's the other thing that's driving this in concert too. So this, this new media is also working with something that legacy musicians are absolutely terrified of. And that's uh file sharing. That's Napster and my uh, personal favorite LimeWire. Uh, when Wolf Parade started, I was uh, I was a total LimeWire junkie. You know, I would uh, I would go to We're getting movies off of there. I would go to work and like queue up, like uh, try and get like the new Wilco record, and end up getting like a bunch of demos instead, which I yes. think I <laughs> I still have on CD. But like Tim and Arlen, like what was what was your experience with file sharing as like a music consumer, like not as somebody in a band worried about uh, potential sales loss? But I mean, I definitely took advantage of it. Like it's, yeah, like like uh yeah soul seek uh yeah definitely yeah i mean i mean yeah definitely it was very useful i think i think also like in in concert with those with the immediacy of pitchfork it actually i mean in the case of wolf Parade, i'm i'm almost certain that it drove uh physical sales like in venues where we would play i don't know places that places like that there we had no business people like the the record stores in these places would not have been carrying apologies at this point but people would come out you know they would come out to the mm-hmm. shows because they'd bootlegged the record or downloaded it and then they'd mm-hmm. buy a copy you know so mm-hmm. which is not i don't i don't feel like that really exists anymore that's not that's not really an avenue for for people to make cash like at the merch table people are not buying your records well i think everything now is is uh is shifted to streaming so mm-hmm. And just from my own observing my own children and how they consume music is that um, 
their generation seems to be far less interested in like the idea of, of move, you know, that, that culture or music has like movements and there's, uh, you know, like a, a, a scene or like a, a, like it's, everything is just kind of free form. And a lot of the cues they pick up are from like TikTok and, uh, memes and from, you know, like, like my daughter's, you know, listening to Kate Bush because it was in the stranger things. Oh, right. Um, but they don't really consume things so much as, as albums. It's all very like, um, you know, they listen to it's, it's all like single kind of, you know, think of it as singles driven or whatever, but it's, it's, um, yeah, the, the, the idea of like consuming music like album by album is, is I think has kind of left, uh, the cultural space, I think for younger, younger yeah. people, at least until, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean, I don't know as my kids mature, but yeah, I don't not, you know, when I was younger, it was definitely like, you know, you tried to get your hands on on a record or something. And it was, uh, you know, it was kind of hard to find like, this is like pre pre sharing. Um, and you know, when you'd get an album, you know, you'd play the, play the shit out of it. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Where I think now, because it's all streaming and nothing really exists physically and everything's available Mm -hmm. all the time that that's kind of changed things a lot. Uh, and I think we're, we're just kind of getting the, the kind of ramifications of that, of just like the whole, the technology has completely shifted how, I think, uh, especially younger people, like people in their teens and early twenties, um, mm-hmm. how they consume music and how, how they see like culture. Like it, it's, uh, I think it's a lot more, uh, fluid and, uh, I wouldn't say disposable, but, um, I think everything just shifts so fast, you know, way it's faster a, than it's atomized. It's in smaller, it's, smaller and it's very charts. atomized. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, I think yeah. it's interesting what you say about scenes, about how, I mean, when, when we grew up, we would, uh, we would, uh, well, certainly I think the four people in this conversation, anyway, we'd, we'd find something we love and then we would want to know more about the context from which that came. Who else is in their scene? Who else is playing on their record? Mm-hmm. Who, mm-hmm. what, yeah. what yeah, influences like, like, um, they drop like in. the Halifax, you know, when, when the Halifax yeah. thing blew up and it was like. You know, there was Sloan and then Murder Records and then who else was on Murder Records? And then yeah. there was all these different bands that had different, you know, yeah. members and, and whatnot. Uh, that Jail they shared and, Eric, and Eric's Trip, you know, both being th- Yeah, Thresher Mitt and yeah. Yeah, Super yeah. Friends. And I, I feel can, like what we're talking about now is the last gasp of that. Like, I do feel like like people were certainly drawn to Montreal. They were drawn to Toronto to a lesser degree, Vancouver. Um, and I I don't know that that kind of regional interest is still there. Yeah. You know, that there's a bit of right. that with, with Toronto, like, Oh, because Drake and the weekend happened to be from the same city, but that's not a scene. Those are two superstars. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, exactly. You mm-hmm. don't see in the city. So it's like, um, yeah, I feel like the interest in regionality is gone, but this was kind of yeah, the last true. gasp of that. And, and, and people benefited from yeah, it. Yeah. I actually, that's funny. Cause I, my next doubt is that, um, this era was the last time that the internet helped like a physical regional subgenre grow, you know? Uh, I think it's actually I I just finished reading Cadence Weapons book, which just came out last week. Yeah. And um, uh, he I mean, he's from Edmonton, of course, but he moved to Montreal in the early 2010s or maybe in 2010. Yep. Yep. And the way he's he writes about Arbutus and Grimes and Mac DeMarco and um, Sean Nicholas Savage and all that stuff. Like um, I had left Montreal by that point and I was I was interested in a lot of that music, but I didn't realize I'd forgotten like how big Mac DeMarco was there for a second. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and then huge. obviously how big Grimes uh, became. And, and I think that was another Montreal moment that, that I missed uh, a couple years later, but I, 
that was that was another ga- um, example of people gravitating toward a city and a scene and and cross pro- cross pollination. Yeah, and yeah. that was that. I mean, that warehouse scene, the sort of scene that followed the the um, time period that you cover in your book, was also helped by what I think was the last gasp of another catalytic uh, component, which I want to talk about next, which is the rent and it being uh, too damn high, right? Too damn high. Right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I personally, like the last couple of weeks, uh, listeners to this show will know that I am being renovicted from my apartment by my landlord. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, and I did, um, I did find a new apartment. Um, Devoika and I have a have a new bunker, a new home base, but it is uh, literally twice as much as what we're paying right now. So, I mean, I guess what I want to say about this is like for a truly like egalitarian art scene to to flourish, you need like infrastructure and a low cost of living. That seems to be the commonly accepted thing across the board. Having a like an economic depression happening doesn't doesn't hurt. Having something like the flight of Anglo capital from the province of Quebec because of you know, referendum doesn't hurt, but could happen again. It could, yeah. I mean, with the new bill, <laughs> yeah. it could happen again. I'm, cr- I'm yeah. crossing my fingers. This tanks the real estate market here, but um, <laughs> but you know, so like you need cheap rent to effectively allow uh artists to spend less time at their day jobs and more time writing songs or painting or writing. Um, and over the course of your book, I I I mean, I know this is a personal truth, but like it was. It was interesting to see artist after artist just just talk about how little they paid in rent back in these days. And just just to make it so it's not about inflation, I plugged in some rent into uh into an algorithm that adjusts for in- inflation. So the three bedroom apartment I rented in the plateau when I moved to Montreal, I was paying two hundred and seventy five dollars a month for, including heat, uh, which would be four hundred and twenty four dollars in today's money. Um a two-bedroom apartment is two thousand dollars minimum here in the city right now. So five times as much. Yeah, just to kind of contextualize everything. So, like, did this strike you when you were writing this book? Like, how many people were talking about this, and do you think it had anything to do? Do you do you think it was a driver in the scene, kind of coalescing and being allowed to flourish? It it struck me because I consciously asked that question of everybody. That, wow. that was okay. what that was. I went I went into this book. That was one of the like, you know I did. I asked people very specific questions about their career, but I had a stock, you know, five or six questions I asked everybody. Yeah. And rent was the first one. Amazing. Because I wanted to know, um, because for all the reasons you just outlined, um, I know how cheap it was in in Montreal in particular, after the referendum of 95, um, all those Constellation people talk about it all the time, uh, Constellation Records people, about how how cheap rent was. My friend and former employer, Patty Schmidt from Brave New Waves, bought a building in old Montreal because right. it was so <laughs> everything just like, it plummeted so much. Um, and uh, and she still lives there. Um, and uh, people like Howard Billerman talk about this a lot too. Um, but even Toronto was cheap by that. But it was not that much more expensive than Montreal at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you what? had stories like uh, like to, uh, a friend of Tim and uh, myself, Jim Guthrie, famously lived in a a closet uh, right off Queen Street for fifty bucks a month, you know, and he had a part time <laughs> job at a me- at a museum a block away. Um, uh, and I heard crazy stories about Vancouver in the late nineties too. I, and obviously all that. I changed. also lived in a closet in Vancouver where my room was. <laughs> uh, you would go into a house filled with uh, just like 
people experiencing various levels of substance uh, uh, abuse. And you would come yeah. to the end of the hallway and there was a door that you would expect cleaning supplies to be in and you would open it and th- it contained my bed, <laughs> which fit perfectly in the closet, but had room for nothing else. So right. I would take my shoes off, open the door and collapse into bed after work and close the door behind me. And I think right. I think I pay, but- paid about 50 or $75 for that. So. But the key thing here is is you need failure and you need time to fail. Yeah. And you need in order to fail, you need cheap rent. Like you'll you'll never improve. Nobody's awesome right out of the gate. Like you need those years to to figure shit out. Mm-hmm. Um and that's that's where cheap rent comes in handy. And I I have I remember I mean there's a famous quote from Patty Smith. This is quite a while ago now, but it's certainly relevant. And people are asking like, yo, what about new artists in Manhattan today. She's like, don't go to Manhattan, like go to Detroit or something like go, like no one can afford to live in Manhattan. Are you kidding me? The Manhattan I grew up with is long gone. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's, I would hope that it's not long gone, but I'm sure it's true of, of Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver today. And, um, one thing I'm really interested in post COVID and I kind of hope this does happen. I mean, we all know people who've left the big cities and have moved elsewhere to Morin Heights or whatever, but it's like, if you, I think people should leave Toronto and they should go to Brantford or Cornwall or Sudbury or like the more interesting artistic people there are decentralized out of the major cities. Um, I think the better, I mean, as long as we can build infrastructure in those cities and, and connect them somehow. Um, but you know, I don't think Toronto should be the center of the universe. I don't think Montreal should be the center of the universe or Montreal or Vancouver. Like it would be awesome if we could spread the wealth out a bit. Of wealth. I'm using the term wealth loosely. Well, they, I mean, but like the issue with that really is that nowhere is cheap anymore, and and you know, Arlen, Arlen specifically is experiencing that right now. And I mean, you're Nanaimo, yeah, in the Nanaimo, yeah, Nanaimo, yeah. British Columbia, Which, yeah, same thing. Rent rent has doubled, and uh, you know, the the term for where I live is the armpit of the island. So <laughs> it's not exactly like known for being. You know, I mean, it's it's a nice it's a, it's on Vancouver Island, but it you know there's no economy here, so there's nothing that really justifies like why rents should be as high as they are. Um, although we're having you know an interesting thing with Nanaimo, where you know we're getting a lot of people from Vancouver and Victoria. Um, yeah, because like yeah, I was talking with people about you know even Victoria, uh, which has always been pretty, kind of expensive, uh, but now yeah, there's 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 very little scene you know music scene happening in victoria right now because yeah there's just there's nowhere to you know there's the 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 possibilities of a band getting together and like renting a house and having a basement to rehearse in or to hold shows that you know i remember how many shows were just like basement shows like and with Mm -hmm. like touring like touring bands from like you know california like seeing the calculators you know, or come fucking, and play a basement. Fucking Green you know? Day in Victoria in the yeah, mid- Green Day, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. The early to mid nineties, Hillside Hell House or whatever. Yeah. yeah, you can watch that on YouTube. You know, um, it's hilarious, and that that just doesn't exist because everything's you know it's been so gentrified that there's no you know there's no possibility that you can just get a cheap house that's got a basement that is in kind of a shitty neighborhood that you can make some noise in. Yeah, is just it's just totally disappearing and with that i think just you know goes the culture um and i mean i think it's you know people have been talking this story for a long time but i think it's at like a critical point where it's like you know oh there's gonna be like zero culture you know like we're really facing these like total droughts in certain you know there will be culture i don't want to be 
totally dark, but it's like, I, I do think there'll be fewer, if not no bands. Yeah. And that's yeah. a key thing. I mean, cause bands obviously need space. You know, I love music, uh, made with, uh, real drummers in a room with other people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that might be on the way out. Um, yeah. Because you need that. I mean, you know? the, the, the vibe was in the air, even in 2000, the late 2000s when, you know, I started Handsome Furs with my ex-wife. And after the second record came out, we both realized that actually having two people in a band and doing your own front of house or whatever was much more lucrative than even being in a band like Wolf Parade, who was, you know, yeah. selling exponentially more tickets and playing for way more people, at least in North America. So... I think that's all. Wait, it's cheaper to be in a band with fewer people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, Tim, damn it. Yeah. no drum kit, you know. It's uh, really helpful, but I mean, it's not like there isn't. Boo. It's <laughs> Need drummers. Boo, yeah. boo. I mean, can I, I? I need to say one thing about drummers. Yeah. Common theme in this book: they're all amazing. Well, like it's true. All yeah, of, yeah. All of these bands, like pick any, like obviously Wolf Parade, Arcade Fire. Hot Hot Heat, New Pornographers, Constantine's, Weaker Thans, like all amazing drummers. Uh, Royal City, like, and listening to all this music again, I'm like, yeah, you know, there's the old adage, shitty drummer, shitty band. I was just going to say, and, uh, if the drummer sucks, your <laughs> band sucks. That's, you know, that's, that's something right. you hear over and over again. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, so yep. thank you, Arlen. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's hard to conceive of a way out of, uh, out of the, the sort of terminal decline of the, of the real estate bubble. Uh, from a North American perspective, but I just wanted to add that, um, you know, uh, amazing things are happening in China with the uh, Common Prosperity Movement, which has uh, wiped $67 billion off the uh, real estate mogul sort of leaderboard. So, you know, um, yeah, yeah it, there, there are ways around it. It just, uh, it just uh, takes a kind of political will, I think. Uh, anyway, speaking of President Xi, uh, <laughs> As one does. I, I would like to talk about uh, a little bit about internationalism um, yep. and, and this music scene, because that's another thing that I've, I've, I've been thinking about a lot about uh, when I've been reading this book is that, you know, there seems to be a sharp division and, and varying experiences with the different artists covered in this book, um, specifically with regards to how they saw themselves in the world as Canadians and like whether they were able to, whether they chose or whether they were able to tour uh, internationally successfully. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's something that's endlessly fascinating to me as a Canadian musician uh, who doesn't feel very much connected to the idea of Canada as a whole. Um, in the book, you have people like, like Joel Plaskett, who eventually realizes he would like to tour closer to home. Uh, you've got people who have a big, big successes at a national level, but can't break out of Canada. And then you've got people like Danko Jones, uh, originally from Toronto, garage rock artist who has this epiphany about not being able, uh, not being accepted in North America and then becomes extremely successful in continental Europe. And yeah. I wanted to ask you, like during these interviews, like how did this strike you? Like, did this generation have a different conception of themselves and what they wanted to achieve, as opposed to say the people that you interviewed for your previous book about the earlier mm -hmm. era. I mean, I think everybody tries to break out. Yeah. Um, like no, nobody grows up thinking I only want to be successful in Canada, you know, <laughs> and, and a band like, you know, whatever blue roadie or something had many kicks at the can in the States. And then it w clearly wasn't working and they were doing well enough here. So they stuck with it. Um, 
and a band like the Tragically Hip actually got more and more popular as as they went on in the states, but never on a media level, so people didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think what the common thread with the people here is that they just had zero expectations of Canada. They stopped like they're like, why bother? Why bother trying to please this mainstream Canadian music industry that clearly doesn't give a shit about us? Yeah. They would rather invest in something totally safe and and quote unquote palatable. Like, forget all that. We're just, we're going to make whatever the hell we want to do. We're going to find the freaks around us who love it. And then we're going to find the freaks everywhere else who love it. You know? I mean, again, think of someone like Caribou. Like, there's no commercial sphere for that music at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or someone like Peaches, who's just like, uh, even though she has direct lineage from like Carol Pope, like Toronto didn't want to hear Peaches. Canada certainly didn't want to hear Peaches. She goes to Berlin. And she's still huge there. I was in Berlin a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to a guy who works at Der Spiegel and I showed him the back of the book and I'm like, tell me, I'm just curious, like, look at these artists who rings a bell and, you know, like more than half of them. He's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, and then he says, yeah, Peaches, she's like our mascot here. She's like our Berlin's town mascot. Like she's beloved there. Yeah. You know, she was, um, she was the and- poster person for that era of Berlin, that, that like rediscovery of mm-hmm. Berlin by artists and, and sort of like hipsters for back, lack of a better word. Yeah, and nobody talks about chicks on speed today. But uh, but Peaches is still a thing. Nobody, talk, so nobody I, talks I think- about Atari Teenage Riot and Alec Empire today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, so but I, I, remember, I think that's a common thread. But I remember even like, you know, early days of Hot Hot Heat, uh, that it was definitely a conscious thing for them that's like, we're going to go, we're going to play San Francisco and LA because that's you know that's where it's at and you know especially i think coming from the west coast um you know far away from toronto and and kind of downtown canada so you kind of knew you were never going to get noticed on you know really uh by any sort of media or anything you know you really were left out on you being on vancouver island too oh yeah so yeah I, i remember for yeah for those guys it was definitely like like who gives a shit about can't you know the rest of canada like we're gonna you know we're gonna you know make it and hang out with the guys from like 31g records and gravity and and all that and try to make you know get noticed and get uh you know whatever uh some attention and uh down there and mm-hmm. i think that kind of set the attitude you know at least for me and for other people i knew that that yeah you got to think you know it's it's good to think bigger than just canada or yeah. toronto or or you know trying to be big at vancouver or something which you know and, um, and I would say historically, like, and, and have not been the same, a band like 5440 did the same thing. Like they, they would tour, they were bigger in California than they were in Ontario in the first little bit when they were on Modamu records. And then, okay. um, and then that. they got signed in LA. So, I mean, that's a very common Vancouver trajectory and obviously DOA and no means no also like ruled the West coast. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's always been this big West coast. Like, again, why would you cross the country <laughs> to play for yeah. nobody in <laughs> yeah. Toronto? It's yeah. just common sense. Yeah. I mean, um, for me, like, uh, you know, kind of like Arlen was saying with Hot Hot Heat, it was just, I couldn't name you a Canadian net, uh, record label. Like, that, w- and maybe Network Records, because Skinny Puppy was on there. But but at the beginning, before, like, 3Gut and those labels really got going, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know that Canada had its own major label system. And there weren't any sort of popular Canadian or successful Canadian artists that I even would want to meet or, you know, uh, Mint? play shows with uh, that were anywhere close to my age. So it was all people who were older. Right. 
And I was mm. mainly focused on, yeah. Like, I would have been excited to meet 31G Records people. I would have been excited to meet, uh, you know, the guys from Nation of Ulysses or Unwound, mm-hmm. you know, who in retrospect were not huge acts, but in my mind, they were American and successful because they were making a living playing music. So I was just going to ask where Mint fix it, fits in there. Mint Records. Mint, yeah. I I don't know. I never really got into the whole Mint Records scene because I, yeah, I knew some of the people who were on it um, and played music with them occasionally. It was it was pretty twee. Yeah, yeah. especially for, for Victoria. Like Victoria was yeah. like, you know, especially back then, it's like was you know was not a twee vibe. It was right. You know, <laughs> yeah. You guys don't strike me as twee. Yeah. Sorry, Tim. You were saying. Yeah. Like I was going to say, I remember. Yeah. Oh, it's like, I yeah. Say, like, I remember. Oh. <laughs> you go for it. Go for it. Oh, you go, you go, you go, Tim. You go, Tim. I was going to totally change. Anyway, I was going to say, just just thinking about like, like things that gave inspiration for like getting out of Canada or like, you know, kind of, I was thinking about uh, when I discovered the Billions website, like, like, yeah. just like, like I'd go there just to look up tours that were happening because there were so many artists on Billions that I was excited about. Mm-hmm. And, and like, yeah, like it was sort of a, I, I, Sort of, yeah, sort of piecing together how everything worked just in my young brain without any real context of like, or like, or like playing a show and opening for a band and being like, how do you guys, like, where, what did, how did you do this? Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a, it was like kind of a long process to put the puzzle together. That was, that was definitely a thing that was how you learned and potentially made money. If you didn't live inside the metropole, you would, you know, if mm-hmm. you live somewhere like Victoria or Guelph, you would, Mm-hmm. open for bands coming through town and in victoria it was mostly like uh pacific northwest what the, the the pre sort of boom indie stuff pre-commercial indie so murder city devils uh modest mouse before you know they before they even signed for moon in antarctica um just and all sorts of weird shit too that was like the, ra- re- the rapture you the know ra- the rapture, rapture before they were yeah know. and you would just fight to get on those bills and um mm-hmm. And it was, it's funny because every time you'd play one of those opening shows, you were playing for the same people you would play for at a headlining show and making significantly less money. But, the, yeah. but it was kind of more like it was just cool to open for these bands because these bands seem real. They seem more real yeah, than yeah, what you yeah. were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so by 2004 and five. Um, all eyes are in Canada. The, the scene has produced some incredible albums that have moved the needle internationally. We mentioned some of these artists. You know, you've got Peaches. Uh, you've got um, new pornographers. And I wanted to ask everyone, when did you know that it was happening? Or did you, or did you know that it was happening? Like, when do you all indi- did you all individually feel like, oh, this is something. This is coalescing. This is, we've arrived, you know? I mean, for me, it was when we finished record, or like when we finished recording Funeral, and we uh, we opened up for the Unicorns on a tour, and they they were like they were headlining the tour, and all the so- shows were sold out, and it was great, and we hadn't put out our record yet, and we were opening for them, and it was going really really well, like it was like just super fun and exciting, and and that was the first time I had been like I quit my job, and I was like okay I'm I'm doing this thing, and and then, yeah, and then, yeah, that was kind of, early. I don't, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I obviously didn't have any idea that it, it was going to be a big scene or anything like that. But just in terms of, you know, like, I guess, I guess that came a little maybe 
after we'd been touring a little more and then like I remember when like Spin magazine showed up in Montreal was a spin yeah. to do that article about the Montreal mm-hmm. music scene. It was like, this is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Arlen, what about you? What was your what was your uh, sort of eyes open moment? I think I think uh when we we did that show at the main hall, uh and it was before Apologies had come out. So I think it was like summer of two thousand and five. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was a show and it was like super poorly put together, like no yeah. promotion. It was one of those things like we didn't. It's like, are we actually playing the show? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Like just super disorganized and being like, OK, we're going to do this show. And I remember showing up and there was like a line of people that was because it was like no tickets or anything. It was like yeah. at the door up. and it was like blocks and blocks and blocks long. And I was like, what the fuck is happening here? Like, you know, just like, you know, because this is like even pre social media and stuff. So, you know, it was just all word of mouth. They were all on MontrealShows.com. Yeah. And, you know, it's a bunch of people that I, you know, I didn't know as at the show. And it's like, well, okay, this is something. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd never experienced in my time playing music. And you could really feel like, oh, this is like all my friends' bands now are, you know, are selling out some of the bigger venues in, in town. And it's just like, this is, I guess this is, you know, this is a thing. It's just, it's yeah. happening, you know? And, you know, it's a, a, too, when you you get to a point where you're, you're outgrown a lot of venues that you'd kind of looked at and, and, uh, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, well, Oh shit. Sala is too small now. And yeah, play Sala. Yeah. Or, or, or even like when we played, uh, like Casa del Popolo or whatever, I think with Arcade Fire. Remember when and- we played, yeah, we played. I remember playing Sala with you guys, and I remember Morrow saying it was like the most people that had been in the Sala at that point. Like, it was, oh wow, I think it was it was over capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were yeah. packing them in. Michael, what about also you? way back then oh, too, where you could just come, or where it was everything was kind of laissez faire, and you could just like go way over capacity. Like, it just the resist uh-huh. had no rules. Is like you know. Yeah, just shit. Yeah. You could, you just can't get away with it cram anymore, a thousand you know? people in a one th- uh, uh, in a seven hundred cap venue and just like yeah, yeah whatever. Just keep <laughs> selling tickets. Um, keep selling. <laughs> Mike, Michael, what about you? Was there a moment in um, were, you were in Montreal at that time, right? Like, was there? I, I lived in Guelph till oh three, okay, uh, and then I and obviously in Toronto a lot during that time, yeah. and then Montreal from oh three to oh six. Yeah, um, for me it was much more mundane than. Uh, the professional musicians here. Um, <laughs> it was, it was, it was reading as some like I, I grew up always reading about music and noticing that uh, you would never read about Canadian acts outside of in, in non-Canadian magazines ever. Like nobody would get reviewed. Nobody would get talked about. Um, and around 2000, around that time of Peach's new pornographers, Godspeed, it was like, Whoa, this, something's happening here. And then even like, I remember there's this label in Halifax that was getting all their records reviewed in Mojo and stuff. And this was the label that had Joel Plaskett and the Guthries and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's going on? Like, Mojo, they've never cared about Canada. <laughs> and then um, uh, and then it just kept going. It just kept, like, and then Hidden Cameras signed to Rough Trade. And then yeah. Broken Social Scene became the first uh, Pitchfork um, success story even before Arcade Fire. And then... The unicorns was like, how did this band get so popular? This is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it just kept accelerating and accelerating. And then at the time, I was conscious something was happening. I'm like, and I was a bit older. I was like 
30 years old at that point. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the time in most people's lives where they're like, well, you know, I've had my fun or whatever. The, the good times have passed was like, no, no, this is so exciting right now. Yeah. And, um, and it felt like something. And I started keeping notes that had nothing to do with what I was writing professionally. And just like, I want to remember this, like a gig diary. It's like tonight at Sala, I saw this. And you, the first time I saw Wolf Parade and, you know. I, I just wanted to talk really briefly, like as, as we, as we kind of come to the end of the show here, a lot of these stories are, this is a takeaway I had from the book, which is that a lot of these stories, as much as there are success stories in the book, a lot of them are about self-sabotage, uh, which <laughs> Wolf Parade, I will admit, definitely flirted with, definitely- oh, we, we indulged. We indulged, indulged and danced upon the edge of the cliff of self-sabotage, but there are other bands uh, who just went straight over, uh, like the Unicorns. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, think about life, uh, elements of the Godspeed uh, arc have a lot to do with self-sabotage. And Howard Billerman, uh, who produced Arcade Fire's Funeral and recorded, uh, you know, the first the first time Wolf Parade ever recorded professionally was with Howard. He also did Expo 86. Howard had this quote, which was um, having that he had a fight or flight response to stupid things, meaning like if someone would present him with an opportunity, he would... <laughs> <laughs> he would just flip out, and I, I feel like, right. I feel like that's at, at the root of a lot of the self sabotage that was happening in this scene. I, I wonder if you know, Tim. Like, did you ever, did you ever experience that with Arcade Fire? Or was that just not on the table for the band? I mean, if it had been solely left up to me, I'm sure there would have been a fair amount of like self sabotage. But I think, I mean, I think the, I mean, actually, like, yeah, I think, I mean, when, when, like, came from a very different world where whereas like you know his grandpa was like you know like there was just per- music was a big part of his family so like he didn't for him like the music industry wasn't something you know he he was just more at home uh thinking about it yeah uh you know so so that and that, that was a big you know and actually i think howard for us actually was quite helpful at the beginning as well like you know like that was how we got our merge connection and like you know i don't know i don't, I don't know just somehow in the balance it it all worked out, you know, like, yeah, there was kind of enough restraint and, and also, uh, not saying no to it. Yeah. I mean, there are some examples in this book of people who said, who did definitely try and play the game and said yes to everything and got burned by it, you know, mm. uh, yeah. pretty badly. Like I'm thinking Hoxley Workman, uh, even like mm-hmm. pre moving to Europe, Danko Jones was struggling with that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, D- Michael. Like during your research, did you decode any pattern or formula for success here with these groups? Or <laughs> no. <is it> just <laughs> like, do you, can you lay? Can you lay down some like uh, this is uh, like Rivers Cuomo style? This is how you. This is how you make it. I can use this podcast to announce that I'm moving into music management. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's that's what I love about about. Um, the diversity of stories in this book is everything you just said. It's like people who, who went for the brass ring and, and fell and then people who managed to find balance and then other people who, who crashed and burned. I mean, it's, um, you know, uh, Nick Thorburn talking about the unicorns uh, uses the phrase falling up, you know, mm-hmm. which, uh, is, is so true. Um, and that's a story I thought I knew because, um, I, I know, I know Jamie a little bit. We shared some, uh, Montreal to Guelph commutes during that time. Uh, yeah. And um, so I thought I knew the unicorn story, but I really had no idea until I did those interviews for this book. Like that was crazier than I ever imagined. 
Um, and the fact that, uh, yeah, they were basically literally fighting on stage and then, you know, the yeah, yeah, yeahs came backstage, told them it was awesome and that they had to stay together. Like yeah. <laughs> stuff like that think, was just insane. One of the, I think one of the most telling anecdotes like to, to describe this sort of self-sabotage is, is a unicorn's anecdote, which is um, a label approaching them with an astronomical sum of money. Like, yeah. um, and them basically having a struggle session about it. Uh, one of the band members saying, absolutely not. And then... Several months later, I guess six months later or something, another record label approaching them, a, a similar style of record label. This is not like a yeah. tiny indie, like on the same level as the label that made the first offer, approaching them with one tenth that amount of money and them agreeing to do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, like I don't think it was even six months no later because that, point that band's entire story is in 18 months. Like right. the rise and fall of the unicorns is like, I, and I contrast it with, with your band. Like I like in the time it took for the unicorns to have their entire career, you were just getting going. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I think in the time it took the unicorns to have their entire career was probably the time from like deciding, signing to Sub Pop, finishing apologies, and then apologies coming out, which was kind of a, prota- a yeah. protracted process. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's very insane. Um, but but in terms of lessons, I, I I'm really curious because I feel like. I wonder what people will take away from this book. I think that people who are of the age to have lived through it will take a lot of things out of it. But I wonder about younger people. Like people say, you know, what does the influence of this time and what what lessons are learned? And I'm like, I mean, the music industry has changed so much. I don't know what lessons you can learn from these stories necessarily. I think you should just take them as great great stories. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that a lot too. I was going to ask, you know, like, does this have any lessons for the future? <laughs> And I, I don't think that's a question that's answerable. It's like you said, everything, the, the landscape has totally shifted. And, you know, I mean, if you want to get if you want to get philosophical about it, you could just be I mean, because like, you know, like when we when we were doing it, there also wasn't probably a lot of helpful advice that we were getting in a way, you know, like like and I would say I would say that probably it is just to go with your gut. <laughs> A lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just like, I'd also advice, say, but you know, it's like, don't take any wooden nickels, kid. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'd exactly. also say yeah. that, the, you know, try to be in the right, try to what? Try to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, if that's you what it really all comes somehow. down to. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, yeah, you can to, win the lottery. Uh, that helps, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like a, if you if your parents are paying your rent, uh, that's that's a good thing. If you can somehow get born to a family that will say buy you a yeah. starter home or something, or allow you to yeah. fuck you around, out, like a, if you can put out a pretty good record when music blogs are launching, like do that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Arlen, you've got a you've got a really 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 good quote uh, at the end of the book um, explaining to people. You're in the quote. You're explaining to people at your current job as an electrician how we lived in Montreal back then, and the quote <laughs> ends: "We lived like people who were retired." <laughs> it was. I still think of like you know the the kind of peak. You know, uh, going down to, you know, uh, Olympico or open tonight and just having all your friends there at like two in the afternoon on like a Tuesday. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's like nobody, anybody work? Anybody have a job? No. <laughs> yeah. We lived like, just, Gre- you know, we lived like contemporary Greeks, you know, like. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 It was, uh, it was pretty magical because that, I think it's that, that kind of everyone having, 
you know, the time and getting to live in close proximity, uh, you know, it's all these, these, these factors coming together that I think, you know, you just, you can't like, you, you can't plan this kind of stuff out, you know, it just kind of happens. And, uh, it's, it's pretty lucky that, you know, being in a, yeah, a town like Montreal, uh, you know, one of the reasons I moved there was cause it was so much cheaper than Victoria. So it just, yeah. it just made sense. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the ability to just kind of, you know, uh, uh, be around a bunch of really creative people uh, and have the time and, and kind of the space to, to make music and be creative is, you know, yeah, it really created something great in, in that time. You know, I think, I think that's a good place to wrap up, you know, honestly, uh, I think, I think between that and, and Michael, you're at the top of the episode talking about being able to fail, having the, uh, mm-hmm. having the ability financially to have the time to fail or indeed live like a retired person you know <laughs> it's only gonna be like a failed retired like a failed retired person is <laughs> only gonna be good for art also side note we should probably start building culture bunkers here in canada uh yeah like they have in europe um so yeah guys thank you thank you for coming on the show um thank you for uh I mean, we're only skimming the surface here. Like, if you want to know about this mythical time in Canadian history, you have to buy the book. So, so buy the book. Um, Thank you. Just, just get it, <laughs> get it any way you can. Just spend money on it. Um, and that's it. We're we're leaving the stage. Uh, the lights are coming up. We're loading our gear out the back door into the van. Um, go to the merch table, buy the book. Um, and thank you guys for coming on. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Great yeah. seeing you. Great to see you all. Yeah. See you too. Yeah. And, awesome. and I got I to thank uh, you, the listener, for listening to this free episode of Bottleman. And if you want more. The free one. The free one. Thank you, Arlen. <laughs> thank you. Yes. The free one. It's a free episode. And if you You're want more. You're free on LimeWire. Shut, <laughs> shut up. Shut up, Tim. Uh, shut up. Uh, if you want more, if you want more, you can sign up to the Patreon for the bonus. Bonus. Bonus episode. Bonus. Uh, thank you. That's what I was looking for. Uh, low, low cost of seven Canadian dollars a month. Uh, until then, $7. everybody. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Uh, until then, everyone, keep on rocking in the free world. Bye. Doot. 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 Doot.